0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly.
1: Dear Provost Susan Jeffords, I'm writing to you today to resign as Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Portland State University.
0: And today, I want to begin with a powerful resignation letter from my guest, Peter Boghossian.
1: Over the last decade, it has been my privilege to teach at the university. My specialties are critical thinking, ethics in the Socratic method, and I teach classes like science and pseudoscience and the philosophy of education.
0: Peter's letter to Portland State was read and shared by people in academia, but also just across the world. It powerfully articulates with bluntness that I think has become exceedingly rare what is happening in our institutions of higher education and why it's so dangerous for the health of our politics as a whole.
1: But in addition to exploring classic philosophers and traditional texts, I've invited a wide range of guest lecturers to address my classes from flat earthers to Christian apologists to global climate skeptics to Occupy Wall Street advocates. I'm proud of my work. I've invited these speakers not because I agree with their worldviews, but primarily because I didn't. From those messy and difficult conversations, I've seen the best of what our students can achieve, questioning beliefs while respecting believers, staying even-tempered in challenging circumstances, and even changing their minds. I never once believed... Nor do I now, that the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion. Rather, I sought to create the conditions for rigorous thought, to help them gain the tools to hunt and furrow for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. But brick by brick, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race, gender, and victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. Students at Portland State are not being taught to think. Rather, they are being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues. Faculty and administrators have abnegated the university's truth-seeking mission and instead drive intolerance of divergent beliefs and opinions. This has created a culture of offense where students are now afraid to speak openly and honestly. I noticed signs of the illiberalism that has now fully swallowed the academy quite early during my time at Portland State. I witnessed students refusing to engage with different points of view. Questions from faculty at diversity trainings that challenged approved narratives were instantly dismissed. And those who asked for evidence to justify new institutional policies were accused of microaggressions. And professors were accused of bigotry for assigning canonical texts written by philosophers who happened to have been European and male. At first, I didn't realize how systemic this was, and I believed I could question this new culture. So, I began asking questions. What is the evidence that trigger warnings and safe spaces contribute to student learning? Why should racial consciousness be the lens through which we view our role as educators? How did we decide that cultural appropriation is immoral? Unlike my colleagues, I asked these questions out loud and in public. I decided to study the new values that were engulfing Portland State and so many other educational institutions, values that sound wonderful, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, but might actually be just the opposite. The more I read the primary source material produced by critical theorists, the more I suspected that their conclusions reflected the postulates of an ideology, not insights based on evidence. I began networking with student groups who had similar concerns and brought in speakers to explore these subjects from a critical perspective, and it became increasingly clear to me that the incidents of illiberalism I had witnessed over the years were not just isolated incidents, but part of an institution-wide problem. The more I spoke out about these issues, the more retaliation I faced. Early in the 2016-17 academic year, a former student complained about me and the university initiated a Title IX investigation. Title IX investigations are a part of federal law designed to protect, quote, people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance, unquote. My accuser, a white male, made a slew of baseless accusations against me, which university confidentiality rules unfortunately prohibit me from discussing further. What I can share is that students of mine who were interviewed during the process told me the Title IX investigator asked them if they knew anything about me beating my wife and children. This horrifying accusation soon became a widespread rumor. With Title IX investigations, there is no due process, so I didn't have access to the particular accusations, the ability to confront my accuser, and I had no opportunity to defend myself. Finally, the results of the investigation were revealed in December 2017. Here are the last two sentences of the report. Quote, Global diversity and inclusion finds there is insufficient evidence that Bagosian violated PSU's prohibited discrimination and harassment policy. GDI recommends Boghossian receive coaching. Not only was there no apology for the false accusations— but the investigator also told me that in the future I was not allowed to render my opinion about protected classes or teach in such a way that my opinion about protected classes could be known. A bizarre conclusion to absurd charges. Universities can enforce ideological conformity just through the threat of these investigations. I eventually became convinced that corrupted bodies of scholarship were responsible for justifying radical departures From the traditional role of liberal arts schools and basic civility on campus. There was an urgent need to demonstrate that morally fashionable papers, no matter how absurd, could be published. I believed then that if I exposed the theoretical flaws in this body of literature, I could help the university community avoid building edifices on such shaky ground. So, in 2017, I co-published an intentionally garbled peer-reviewed paper that took aim at the new orthodoxy its title the conceptual penis as a social construct this example of pseudo-scholarship which was published in cogent social sciences argued that penises were products of the human mind and responsible for climate change immediately thereafter i revealed the article as a hoax designed to shed light on the flaws of the peer-reviewed and academic publishing systems shortly thereafter stickers in the bathroom with my name under them began appearing in two bathrooms near the philosophy department. They also occasionally showed up on my office door, in one instance accompanied by bags of feces. Our university remained silent. When it acted, it was against me, not the perpetrators. I continued to believe, perhaps naively, that if I exposed the flawed thinking on which Portland State's new values were based, I could shake the university from its madness. In 2018, I co-published a series of absurd or morally repugnant peer-reviewed articles and journals that focused on issues of race and gender. In one of them, we argued that there was an epidemic of dog rape at dog parks and proposed that we leash men the way we leash dogs. Our purpose was to show that certain kinds of scholarship are based not on finding truth, but on advancing social grievances. This worldview is not scientific, and it is not rigorous. Administrators and faculty were so angered by the papers that they published an anonymous piece in the student paper, and Portland State filed formal charges against me. Their accusation? Research misconduct based on the absurd premise that journal editors who accepted our intentionally deranged articles were human subjects. I was found guilty of not receiving approval to experiment on human subjects. Meanwhile, ideological intolerance continued to grow at Portland State, In March 2018, a tenured professor disrupted a public discussion I was holding with author Christina Hoff Summers and evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. In June 2018, someone triggered their fire alarm during my conversation with popular cultural critic Carl Benjamin. In October 2018, an activist pulled out the speaker wires to interrupt a panel with former Google engineer James Damore. The university did nothing to stop or address this behavior. No one was punished or disciplined. For me, the years that followed were marked by continued harassment. I'd find flyers around campus of me with a Pinocchio nose. I was spit on and threatened by passerbys while walking to class. I was informed by students that my colleagues were telling them to avoid my classes. And, of course, I was subjected to more investigation. I wish I could say that what I am describing hasn't taken a personal toll but it has taken exactly the toll it was intended to, an increasingly intolerable working life and without the protection of tenure. This isn't about me. This is about the kind of institutions we want and the values we choose. Every idea that has advanced human freedom has always and without fail been initially condemned. As individuals, we often seem incapable of remembering this lesson, but that is exactly what our institutions are for to remind us that the freedom to question is our fundamental right. Educational institutions should remind us that that right is also our duty. Portland State University has failed in fulfilling this duty. In doing so, it has failed not only its students, but the public that supports it. While I am grateful for the opportunity to have taught at Portland State for over a decade, it has become clear to me that this institution is no place for people who intend to think freely and explore ideas. This is not the outcome I wanted, but I feel morally obligated to make this choice. For 10 years, I have taught my students the importance of living by your principles. One of mine is to defend our system of liberal education from those who seek to destroy it. Who would I be if I didn't? Sincerely, Peter Bogosian.
0: The show today is an in-depth conversation with Peter, who walks us through exactly what is happening on his college campus, but on campuses across the country. And I think those stories can often feel overblown or confusing or, frankly, like elite inside baseball. And I think he does as good a job as I've heard at explaining why it's not and why it's relevant to every single one of us. The other thing we talk about, and this is a topic that goes well beyond college or the state of higher education, is what drove Peter to stand up in the way that he did. We talk about the importance of asking yourself eternal questions like, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to live? What are the virtues that I want to live by? And how the articulation of those virtues to yourself and also out loud can inspire courage and bravery that perhaps you yourself didn't think was possible. Please stay with us. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you unpacking Israeli history, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide packs in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so Peter, I want to go back before the transformation, before the university became the social justice factory. What was it like when you joined Portland State University? And what was the context that you joined under?
1: It was a great place to teach. I did my dissertation at Portland State University. That's where I got my doctorate. And I taught in prison systems. And I was drawn to Portland State because I enjoyed the let knowledge serve the city brand. Is that the motto? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I believe that. I believe that knowledge should be inherently practical to help people. And and it not just people, but to help the least advantaged among us. It's a philosopher, um, American philosopher John Rawls writes about in a, a book that moved me, it, that really changed my intellectual life called the theory of justice. But I believe that and I lived it. And so, so I taught at Portland State, and and then I I got involved in the atheism and atheist movement, and they loved that. They they were they loved that because that comported broadly with the worldview. So I never really encountered any any problems there. And it it wasn't until significantly after that that I started really piecing things together.
0: You mentioned that you taught in the prison system. What does that mean? What did you teach?
1: Oh, I. Taught critical thinking and moral reasoning with the goal to increase prison inmates' more reasoning abilities to help them desist from crime and teaching them how to think through morally complicated problems. Hmm. It was basically a kind of training where they can empower themselves with reason. Because to me, that's, that's what the whole, this whole thing is about. It's about reason and evidence.
0: How did teaching in the prison system compare to teaching at Portland State, at least in the beginning?
1: <laughs> uh, t- teaching in the prison system is a, a totally unmediated. <laughs> uh, I I enjoyed it. I I had a, a – um, the discussions were among the most free. I published those discussions. If wants to read them, But they were among the most free I've ever had. They were completely unmediated, totally honest. The, the subjects there, – there was nothing off. We talked about murder. They talked about and, – and it was really a – an opportunity for me to experience a way people think about things that just never occurs to me. Like, you know, mm. killing people came up a lot or, you know, incidents of violence or rage. And I, I, I was just struck by the power of reasoning to bend the moral arc towards sanity and and away from violence.
0: You are drawn to people who think differently than you. You're fascinated by that, which is something that these days seems like a quality that's increasingly rare. And you write about that in your letter. You mentioned in your piece that you brought into your classes flat earthers and Christian apologists and people who think radically differently than you. What was your goal in exposing your students to people like that? And what was the feedback like at first when you you began doing that at school?
1: That's a, a big question so just to, to name some of the names. So the Christians I brought, I brought in Corey Miller who's the head of Ratio Christi, the, the leading Christian organization on campus. We ended up doing a tour by the way of Utah I think a four or five university tour something like a Christian and an atheist argue for intellectual diversity. Flat Earthers I had a Mark Sargent come in the guy who who's a, a leader in the in the Flat Earth, um, movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had Nick Pope come in, who who um, was an employee for the British government's Ministry of Defense, and he provided evidence for um, alien abductions and and UFOs and th- things of that nature. Also, I had Phil Vischer come in from from Veggie Tales to talk about Christianity, etc. But um, I brought them in because I I genuinely believe it's not enough that people are taught by people who think differently than them. And John Stuart Mill talks about uh, writes about this. They have to be taught by people who believe it, so I don't believe any of the arguments for the existence of God. like I teach them, but I don't believe it and And if you really want students to get the most out of it, you have to bring in people who are believers you just you just have to
0: so when you did this at the beginning, let's say a decade ago, what was the student response?
1: Well, it was terrific, but even now, when I brought in the Flat Earth the flat earth guy, their response was excellent. But now I, like the global climate change fellow, I could never bring in, I could never bring in individuals who question the dominant orthodoxy. There, there are things that you just, anything about protected classes, for example.
0: What do you mean when you say protected classes?
1: When you look to the literature, it means people who ha- whose ancestors have been historically imp- oppressed or are currently oppressed, but it gets tricky because not all people. So Jews and Asians don't fall into that category.
0: Why is that? That
1: is the subject of a podcast in and of itself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So just to go back to your experience at Portland state, you get there about a decade ago. At first you're saying it's an ideal place to teach, mm. but pretty early on my sense is you started to see it change. And I'm wondering in what context you started to see the sort of seeds of the liberalism that it sounds like have now fully swallowed the university. When did you start to see it?
1: I started to see it very, very, very early on in glimpses. Maybe I'm not too good with timelines, but maybe 2012, 2013, I saw glimpses of it. But I just never assumed that there was a culture that wasn't just facilitating this um, being emotionally brittle and kind of uniquely susceptible to, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's just like a kind of infancy, you know, people shaking their hands or jumping up and down or crying or running out of class again. And I also teach. Whoa, a, whoa, whoa, I, wait,
0: wait, Hold on. People okay. are running out of class and crying. What, what would, what would drive a student at Portland state or in one of your classes to run out of class crying?
1: All right. So I was saying that there are biological differences between the sexes. And a person from the back of the class screamed out at me, well, what's an example of that? And so I said, why, why are there no women on professional football teams? And this individual from the back of the class just started screaming obscenities at me and ran out of the class. Um, to this person's credit, they came back into the class, you know, half an hour later after their, many of their colleagues, uh, the other students actually went down to calm them down and told them that, that it's okay. Okay.
0: Hmm. You mentioned to me an incident regarding Star Trek. Is, is that right? Correct. What happened in that case?
1: I'm a science fiction fan, would be putting it mildly, and I use Star Trek examples in my class. And I was using Star Trek examples, and, a, and a, a woman in class had never even heard of Star Trek, and I was very surprised that she like I can understand you you one wouldn't watch Star Trek, but that actually they hadn't heard Star Trek was really surprising to me. And, um, at the end of the class, a woman started screaming at me that I had, I think her exact phrase was, I've never heard so many microaggressions in my life. And I said, okay, well, you know, can you give me an example of this? And she said, you told an Asian student in the class that you were shocked that she hadn't heard of star Trek. And I said, that's, that's correct. Like I just I didn't understand what the pro- the problem was as she attempted to articulate that the student was Asian. Now you know as you know my daughter's adopted from from China and many a d- night I had literally forced her to, to, to watch to watch Star Trek with me. But I wasn't I wasn't looking at the person in the class as an Asian student. I was just surprised that somebody had never heard of Star Trek. Like that was a, a genuinely bewildering thing to me. But
0: the person was assuming
1: that it was racial.
0: Yeah. Okay. Right. I guess for me, I remember very, very clearly the f- infamous incident with Yale professor Nicholas Christakis in 2016. Right. Um, which I, was either 2016 or maybe it was even 2015. It might have even been a year earlier. And of course, that was when he and his wife, Erica, who were Dean's masters, I guess is the was the word at the time, I'm sure they've now since changed it, of a residential college at Yale. And the occasion was Halloween. And they sent out an email to their students that was, in my view, incredibly lighthearted and incredibly respectful of students basically saying, you're adults, use your best judgment in the things you decide to wear for Halloween this year. And try not to let yourself be swept into a frenzy or be triggered by someone's sombrero was essentially what they were saying. And for this email about Halloween costumes,
1: you have created space really for violence.
0: I disagree with that. Yeah. I disagree with that. You, you all get a choice here. You don't I disagree. Know. I disagree that I've fostered violence. Wait. I disagree with that statement. There was a viral video of Nicholas Christakis being confronted by dozens, maybe it was even a hundred students on the quad of Yale University.
1: It is not- Creating an intellectual space. It is not. It's about creating a home here.
0: Who were sobbing. These
1: freshmen me here, they think this is what Yale is.
0: Who were enraged. I am sick looking at you. I am disgusted watching Alex argue with you. You were disgusting who were exhibiting the kind of behavior that you just described of students running out of the classroom. And they were screaming at him that they were embarrassed to be associated with him in, and, and be associated with him in the same college. And now I want your job to be taken from you. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't want you to have this job. I am disgusted knowing that you work at Yale University where
0: I will get my degree. Was that a watershed moment for you? What was the moment that you started to tie these incidences together and see that they weren't just individual students who were hypersensitive, but they were part of a systemic issue that was happening not just at Portland State University, but on college campuses around the country.
1: Okay. So at the root of all of this is you want to find problems. And the more conspicuous, the better, the more obvious, the better. And these are tangible manifestations of a social injustice and to rectify that we need to raise the whole system mm-hmm. all of our institutions are corrupt with patriarchy they're corrupt with misogyny and racism etc and there are visible manifestations of this now i didn't know that this was connected to systems level thinking you know like systemic racism is a great example of that it's not just racism even the, de- the, the definitions have, have changed but at the time, I didn't make these connections because I didn't understand that they were using words in nonstandard ways. right? I didn't understand, for example, when Trump was running for office and, and there were diversity panels, why there was no Trump supporter on the diversity panel. Mm-hmm. And you have one other thing operative here that I think is important. It's the, this idea of safetyism. It's the idea that certain thoughts, certain ideas are intrinsically harmful to people. But they're not just harmful in a blanket way. They're harmful in ways that affect race, gender, and sexual orientation. And so you need to protect people from those ideas. So you need to create systems that guarantee their safety. For example, inclusion, is an example of that. So when you create an inclusive space, you're creating a welcoming space. And in order to create a welcoming space, you have to make sure that people don't feel excluded and they feel welcomed. And the only way to do that is to have some kind of a speech restriction so that nobody says anything offensive, right? So that nobody mm-hmm. says anything that hurts other people's feelings. But I didn't understand. Like, I just thought when I heard the word inclusion, it means we have to include everybody. Well, of course we have to include, who's who wants to include, exclude anybody. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't make the connections for how the system itself was facilitating a kind of fragility among students, how it was protecting them from ideas that some people would claim to be offensive. And that's the thing I didn't see. I just thought that there were isolated incidents of people who participated in some kind of you know, some, some kind of one-off belief. Mm -hmm. So for example, the whole microaggressions thing was just totally fascinating to me. Like I just couldn't understand how it, particularly in a philosophy class, how you were supposed to learn philosophy if you didn't engage certain ideas that could offend people. Yeah. Like I, it just, I literally was trying, I just couldn't understand it. And so I remember there's an article by two, 2017, Scott Lillenfeld, it's called Microaggression, Strong Claims, Inadequate Evidence. And I would bring this article up to people and no one would respond.
0: What do you mean people? Students, other professors? Uh, you know, other
1: professors, uh, students. And, and, I, and I would say, well, well, here's an article that says that there's strong claims, but inadequate evidence. And people would look at me like I had some kind of a problem. So, So you have to think about this in terms of People are coming to the classroom truly believing that they have the right answers to moral questions. And, you know, it all comports with this suite of beliefs and ideologies that fall into the broad rubric of social justice.
0: I think most people would experience the Star Trek incident and the football incident of the student running from the classroom crying. And I think they would think to themselves, Peter, keep your head down. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to sort of distance myself from anything that seems like it might be vaguely third rail um, and just kind of go with the flow here. But these incidents actually drove you to sort of go to the root of the ideology and the ideas and the books and the theories that are sort of the bedrock of the things that most of us walk through the world and we think, oh, that's crazy. Oh, that's woke. Oh, that's cancel culture. You actually became an expert in the ideas behind a lot of the nonsense that a lot of us read about in the headlines. Yeah,
1: I I, I don't think there's anything special about me. I just think that that's Socratic training. Like anybody who's been, who's really, truly and, and sincerely read the platonic dialogues and looked at the conversation Socrates had with people, he's just always curious about how people know stuff. I mean, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Like, why do you believe that? How do you know that? And I really do. If someone knows something I don't know, I want to know it too. And so I was always curious when, when people were upset by something and I was trying to figure out like, what was the reason Mm -hmm. that people were upset? Like, I just, I, I couldn't figure it out. And even, you know, when I asked, I asked my, Colleagues, I, I even asked somebody who was in charge of this, and the response I got was to report me for asking questions. He literally reported me, and, and that's his job, is to explain the diversity initiatives to people. And, and at that point, I realized, like, wow, this, there's something – either I have fundamentally misunderstood something or something is awry here. Something is sick. Something is truly wrong w- w- with this.
0: Well, it's like curiosity is the bedrock of the entire idea of an education. And all of a sudden you were finding that that curiosity was a liability to you.
1: Right. And it's only the bedrock of an education if you go in thinking that you don't have the right answers. If you go in thinking that you have the right answers to moral questions, there is no curiosity. It's a catechism. Right, so, so it, it's not a symposium anymore where people come to discuss ideas. It's a kind of church, and not just a kind of church. It's a kind of fundamentalism.
0: Where did you go looking for the primary source material?
1: That's 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 a great question. It took me a while to figure this out. So there is a nucleation point to the madness, and that nucleation point, the source, the, the where it is coming from, is in disciplines dealing with race, gender, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever I did learn about something that could not possibly be true, and I looked into it, invariably, it came from a single body of literature. It came from what I later termed with my colleagues, grievance studies, disciplines that were designed to find grievances and point those out and those were always in the areas at least w- when i sorted this in like you know 2014 th- those were always in the areas of race and gender and sexuality
0: so you mean classes like gender studies or right not
1: not just classes but entire bodies of literature mm-hmm. entire scholastic peer reviewed journals upon which the university was basing its policy
0: so you're immersing yourself in this literature, and you're finding that not only are there journals devoted to essentially hunting for like archaeologists for the smallest of offenses, right. not only are there whole departments at universities across the country based in this, but there are whole bodies of knowledge built on this false foundation. Correct. And you decide that you're going to be a little bit of a puck and you're going to try and publish essentially a stunt article to expose the intellectual rot behind these ideas. Right. Which takes me, of course, to a phrase I've been wanting to say this entire conversation, the conceptual penis. (laughs) Peter, explain to us what the hell the conceptual penis is.
1: So I got the idea to do a hoax paper because Alan Sokol was a professor... Actually, in math and physics at NYU, and he was really upset that these postmodern journals were misappropriating terms and just slinging them around. So he wrote a gibberish paper to the number one postmodern journal in the late 90s, and they published it, and it became a massive scandal. So I thought, well, if Sokol can do that and he proves something, why don't we? It's a tame, I, I did it with a close friend of mine. Why don't we? try to do that with a, with a journal. And, and our, our original idea was we were going to say that potatoes were sexist and causing a, a sexist revolution, but somebody else had beat us to it. There was already articles about potatoes being sexist. So we came up with this idea. Since everything is a social construct, we came up with the idea of the penis being a social construct and responsible for climate change. And we, we put in some incredibly funny and vulgar language, and we published that paper And then we wrote it up in in Michael Schoenner's Skeptic Magazine why we did it.
0: When that came out, that was around the time that you came on my radar. And I suspect that, you know, if you hadn't been famous or infamous or notorious on campus before, that that kind of made your reputation. And, And I'm curious how that changed your experience on campus.
1: Oh, they were livid. People were, I mean, they were beside themselves. I mean, livid people stopped talking to me they you know looked at me when i was walking i mean they truly genuinely livid they they were livid because it was a questioning of the orthodoxy but with humor and you can find the conceptual penis online and one thing i've realized is that ideologues don't have very good sense of humor
0: and the people who were pissed or the people who were livid are we talking about other professors? Are we talking about your students? I could imagine a world in which publishing a paper like that would make everyone want to sign up for your classes.
1: Oh, my! it was my colleagues. Here's the thing that I haven't told many people. So if I, if I kept my mouth shut about the conceptual penis and never revealed it as a hoax, that would have gone into my promotion and tenure packet. <laughs> so I literally would have gotten credit to be promoted because of a nonsense article in this, in the same way that, that so many other people get credit for, for publishing in basically nonsense articles in, in journals dealing it's certain journals, those dealing with race, gender, and sexuality. And I think the conceptual penis made it clear to everybody where you stood. Yeah. I'm a troublemaker and I'm going to speak up. So in other words, look, I'm under no illusions. I didn't truly understand the consequences, but I knew what I was doing. I knew yeah. that I was whacking the hornet's nest. I knew that I was saying, hey, there's a problem here. And so the difference it can, in Brett's situation, I think a lot of people thought, rightly or wrongly, that happened to him. Brett, Brett
0: meeting Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying at Evergreen.
1: Right, right. But in, in my situation, I think people, a lot of people thought Bogosian brought this on himself. He published The Conceptual Penis.
0: Right. I mean, my view was always not that anyone should ever bring swastikas or bags of feces or people spitting on them or people throwing bottles at their head. No one deserves that. But I definitely thought this is someone who is a provocateur in the way that a lot of other professors who have gotten punished for their thought crimes just aren't.
1: Yeah. So, so yes, I don't, but it wasn't merely to provoke. It was, to, and, and that's if you look at the ex, the write up that we wrote, it was to say there's a problem here, and and it's a problem that's far deeper than you think that it is. But that's the other thing. I think, you know, at the time people were thinking I was a crackpot, mm-hmm. like what you know, it, it went from there's no problem to yeah, okay, it's fringe disciplines with a couple of, you know, a few crazy people in certain departments to, okay, whole departments are kind of whacked, but that's okay, to, all right, well, you know, we know it's the university system, but that's not a big deal, to, it's leaking out, but it's not that bad, and then look at it now. It's literally everywhere. Yes. I mean, it is the dominant moral orthodoxy.
0: So you publish the conceptual penis. You manage to get it into a peer-reviewed journal. Right. And then one of your critics basically says, conceptual penis isn't sufficient. If you want to really prove the intellectual rot that you believe is endemic in the academy, or at least in many of these bodies of knowledge and these journals, in these departments, you got to do more than that.
1: And he was right. He was, he was, That was right. That was good criticism. And in
0: 2018, you, along with two of your colleagues, you decided to do that. And you submitted fake papers to journals with titles like human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at the dog park. Right. You, you did one that was just a section of Mein comp, but rewritten right. with a feminist lens. Tell right. us about this project, which became known as the Grievance Studies Project.
1: The point of the Grievance Studies Project was to show that in no time flat, I don't have a PhD in this stuff, people can publish total nonsense, but not, not just total nonsense, but really hurtful, deranged ideas, divisive ideas, as long as it promotes a certain set of moral values, which is more morally fashionable. So the three of us wrote 20 papers. We had seven papers published. And maybe this is Pollyanna, but I always had in the back of my head, I, I, I truly, do believe, as Aristotle said, that people want to know. Like, I I just truly believe that that there would be a non-trivial number of people who would say, holy smokes here, there is a problem with this.
0: So just to make it perfectly clear, you're saying the places that were publishing these hoax papers about dog rape, okay, they were peer-reviewed, meaning the professional scholars in these areas, looked at these papers and thought, this is valuable. This is important. This is an important contribution to our field.
1: Well, well, actually the quote from one of the reviewers was, this is an important contribution to knowledge. Mm-hmm. So there's not just a lack of rigor in these fields. It's that these are influencing public policies and people are teaching these to students. And when they say, well, how do you know something? They have them read these peer-reviewed articles which are just fabricated wholesale, and then they're tested on, and then they leave the university and they bring these ideas, for example, trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, they bring that out with them, and then that gets embedded in the institutions where those people go.
0: The whole idea, when you say a peer-reviewed journal, right, at least in the old world, that meant that it's the blue chip. It's the gold standard. Correct. And you were basically saying, no, it's sort of like you know, if the Weiss family sat around and we all wrote papers saying the Weiss family is the best family. Like it's, it's like a, I don't want to say it's a conspiracy, but it's like a racket.
1: It's idea laundering.
0: What is idea laundering?
1: So in idea laundering, a bunch of people. So we want I love that the Weiss family is, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. (laughs) So so the, the Weiss family is the best family. They have all these superior values. And then you get your sister on there and she's like, yeah, the Weiss family is awesome. And then I'm a big fan of the Weiss family. I'm like, yeah, I love the Weiss family. So we, we all get together and we all agree that the Weiss family is fantastic. And so we're all in academia or academics. And so we start a journal. You put out the journal. Uh, maybe I solicit people to write in the journal. Maybe your sister's the editor of the journal. And then we publish a journal and we sell it to libraries. And It goes in as an idea, the Weiss family is fantastic, and it goes out as knowledge, like it's been laundered.
0: Mm, I love that phrase. That's Brett's phrase. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. And and so not, not only do you have idea laundering on a massive, massive scale, but you have idea laundering in which the people doing the laundering have jobs for life. Because they find other people whose values comport with their own, that the Weiss family is fantastic, and then they publish in these journals, and then seven papers in seven years is tenure. So then you change the whole institution is now geared around the fact that the the Weisses are the best family. But here's My parents My parents are gonna
0: love this episode. Yes, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Well, here's the
1: rub. If anybody wants to say, Well, wait a second, what about, you know, the Smiths over there? Right. That won't get published. Why? Because why on earth would you publish a piece saying that if the raison d'etre of your journal is to say that the Weiss family is the best family, and someone someone says, well, wait a second, what about the Smith family? Well, they're just not going to
0: publish that. How did they capture these ideologues that you're describing? How did they manage to capture all of these departments and journals and create these essentially rotten bodies of knowledge. How did they do it from your perspective?
1: Okay. So I have spent more time thinking about this than any sane, reasonable person should. Okay. So the first thing that they did, as I mentioned earlier, is that they changed the meanings of everyday words. Mm -hmm. So they have hoodwinked an astonishing number of people into thinking that words like diversity or equity, which have a positive valence, are good things. Everybody wants to be for equity. Everybody wants to be for diversity. But the words don't mean what people think they mean. I, my my um, daughter goes to public school here. I'm constantly getting emails about equity, constantly. And every time I ask people what equity means, almost nobody knows what equity means, or they look it up in the dictionary and they see fairness. But from the literature, this is clearly not what these words mean. So how did this happen? Is that they used words in non-standard ways.
0: So they, they start by making waging war or really Trojan horsing language.
1: It's a linguistic war, correct.
0: It's, what's this what's the second stage?
1: They built off of scholarship largely French scholarship and Helen Pluckrose has a lovely piece, how French intellectuals ruined the West in Ariel magazine that explains that process. They, they use that as an edifice to construct a parallel discipline. Like whenever you see the word critical, it doesn't mean you know critical thinking. It basically means it's the study of something and it's the study of a discipline usually defined it Problematic in some way. One, one way you could think about it is the communists wanted to flatten the economic hierarchy, but the woke want to fla- flatten the privilege hierarchy. So any anything dealing with privilege, you know like fat studies, there's a journal. one of the, the journals that we published a piece in said that morbidly obese people, although they don't use the word uh, obese, very, very, very fat people should be allowed to compete in professional bodybuilding shows and they should open up their own competitive space where they go in and they display their fat in non competitive ways. And the, uh, the journal editors thought this was a fantastic idea. And by the way, that's why the Weiss, the Barry Weiss is not the best family, is not going to get in those, those journals. Like you couldn't publish a piece in fat studies that said something like, well, you know, we need to, to watch our A1Cs. Because that's not the purpose of the journal. The purpose of the journal isn't to talk about A1Cs or macronutrients or what have you. The purpose of the journal is to promote fat acceptance. So it just wouldn't work. So to answer your question directly, there there are certain values that they forwarded. And then it was a a process of self-credentialing from there. Now, that's an oversimplified view of how that happened, but that's the basic idea. So now, so many of these thoughts and ideas are simply normative.
0: You write in your letter, Peter, that the more that you question the ideology, the more you were retaliated against. Right. Explain to us what that looked like for you.
1: I, I can do that. I, I really, I really don't want to make it like, "Woe is me! I'm the victim," because that's I just that's just not what it's about. You know that that's not what this should be about, mm-hmm. and I'm even. I'm even self-conscious. I just don't see how answering that question would be particularly productive.
0: I actually, I really admire that about you. And I'm not looking for you to do woe is me or make this about your own grievance. study about Peter Boghossian. The reason I'm asking you about that, Peter, is because I want to explain to people what happens when someone puts their head above the parapet outs themselves as a thought criminal who doesn't go along with this ideology, the mechanisms inside our liberal institutions that are used for illiberal purposes. That's why I'm asking you about it. So if we could just briefly talk about the investigations that were lodged into you, one of them I think is particularly unbelievable about the human subjects aspect of this. It's just, that's why I'm asking, if you wouldn't mind.
1: So... The key word is that university mechanisms are weaponized. That's the word. They're weaponized. And they're used as a threat. They're always in the background like Tolkien's the lidless eye. It's just there looking at you, watching. It's just there waiting and pouncing. The other thing I've I've realized having dealt with individuals who are in the orbit of this ideology is they will speak to you in one way, in a very saccharine, super polite way, but under the the surface of it all, they just have just just despise you. I mean, they have just just such a such an unspeakable hatred for you as a moral monster. And so, one of the things that happens is you, you start to realize that the people who you you thought were your friends aren't really your friends because those relationships weren't really based upon virtue and truth. They were based upon, you know, oh, he's in the same discipline or she's in the same office and everybody's smiling and have kind of a pleasantry, but those were not authentic relationships. And so people just stop talking to you. And the administration is constantly looking for something. They're just constantly looking for something to bring you up on or to get you again or fight because because the, because they already know you're guilty right they know you're guilty the, the question is what what did he do we just have to find what he's done
0: well one of the things that they did in your case is Portland State's internal review board correct me if I'm wrong they open up this investigation into you in 2018 after these hoax papers and the accusation is that you have had a breach in ethics why? Because, and I just found this unbelievable, you didn't get consent from the editors of the journals you submitted papers to, and they classified those editors of the journals as human subjects. How did that shake out in the end, that investigation?
1: I had to do a training, and I think that the consequences would have been far, far worse for me had I not had the leading public intellectuals in the world say, Knock it off! Like this is this is this is crossed the line.
0: And who 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 are the intellectuals defending you?
1: Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, Stephen Pinker, Alan Sokol, uh, Michael Shermer. Um, I, I, the list just goes on and on. Uh, Jonathan Haidt. I mean, just. It's a, literally the world's leading public intellectuals. Mm -hmm. But I have been investigated so many times for so many, I mean, I don't even know how much money, how much time and the results of these investigations are basically nothing.
0: One of the things that really horrified me about your letter um, is that in the process of this title IX investigation, the school is basically reaching out to lots of people in your life, including your students, your former students and Those people reported back to you that the Title IX investigators were asking if they had heard about you beating your wife. And children. And your children? Yeah. And that then becomes a rumor throughout campus. Correct. How, from a just purely human perspective, as a father and a husband, how do you not walk away from that right then? This is an institution that is like trying to demolish you and your life. Not just your career. What keeps you there at that point when you are when the school is apparently trying to actively spread the rumor that you are a wife beater and a child beater?
1: You know, as Hitchin says, the the grave will supply plenty of time for silence. I think it's essential to stand up to bullies. You, you just can't let you, that happen to yourself. Again, I'm. It, it's not like it was anything particularly heroic. I I just wasn't having any of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was crazy stressed out because at the same time that was happening, I mean, there were all these other things that I I just could not talk about in the letter. You know, someone's going through my Facebook page and they're asking, you know, ex-girlfriends about my sexual activities and my any sexual allegations and other people are. I mean, there was just so much crazy, totally. A total departure from any norm of how we would deal with a situation. You can't let those tactics beat you down. I mean, who would I be if I capitulated to that? Mm. There'd be no sense of integrity. There'd be no, you know, the from the Greek sincere. You know, used from the Latin, you to hold the vase up and to see if the vase was sincere, or at least so the rumor goes. You'd hold it up to the light to see if it had been glued back together again. And there's something about being sincere and having your integrity and standing up to this
0: Hmm.
1: that it's what we must do to have the kind of society we want to have because if we don't then petty small people will always get their way and that will destroy all of us so there was really no choice it wasn't like it was a great act of heroism
0: more with philosopher peter bogosian after this
1: For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.
0: I have to ask you, I guess, is this, as a philosopher, I can't believe that that's kind of your title. Mm. I feel like one of the things that I, one of the realities that I've been mugged by in the past few years of life is how many people, like the majority of people, are conformists and go along with the herd. What is it about us as humans that makes your example, whether you think of yourself as courageous or not, it certainly is exceptional. It's certainly not the thing most people would do. What is it about us that makes standing apart so incredibly hard and often painful?
1: I guess it comes down to what kind of life you want to lead. That's the Socratic question. What kind of life do you want to lead? And the only answer to that, and in a profound way, this is a selfish answer. You have to live a virtuous life. You have to be forthright in your speech. That's the only way that you'll develop genuine relationships and friendships because it's the only way that people will know what you mean. And if you're not forthright in your speech – Not only will people not know what you mean, you won't know what they mean. So you'll never have a relationship that's based on virtue. You have a relationship based upon what you think the other person thinks. So they'll never really know you as a person. And so only when you stand up to tyranny, only when you speak truth in the face of danger from the Greek parahesia, only when you do that will you lead a life that's truly worth living.
0: What was that word again that you just said?
1: Parahesio.
0: And what does that mean?
1: Basically speaking truth in the face of danger, for being forthright in your speech. It's, it's the essential component for a life worth living.
0: Peter, in the spirit of holding on to virtues in the midst of, well, a shitstorm, I don't know what else to call it, mm. I wanted to talk about and this is something that I think a lot about in my own life, how you personally guard against letting lies and smears and nonsense around you, like penetrate you. How do you stop yourself essentially from being hardened and radicalized in the face of hardness and radicalism? And I just know from personal experience, but also frankly, Watching others, including people that we know, Mm. that the experience of like being in the teeth of this ideology can cause you to become the very thing that you hate.
1: Correct. Like anti fascist Antifa.
0: Sure. But I I guess I mean more like blackpilled. Like Mm. if they're not going to play fair, neither am I. Mm. If they're going to be trollish, I'm going to be trollish too. Let's fight fire with fire. It's more like a nihilism of spirit
1: if the question is do i feel tempted to use methods to hurt people the the answer is no because to me this has always been about ideas and not about people and i harbor no animus against the people who have genuinely tried to make my life miserable for, for years now, I'm, I, I, this is going to be a weird thing to say, but I really do look at them as epistemic victims. They're just victims of an ideology. And one would think that, well, they're so smart or they're in academics, et cetera, and they'd be less prone to that. But it's exactly the opposite. It's because they're smart that they're better at reasoning to bad conclusions. So being smart isn't a prophylactic against believing dangerous things, it actually makes it worse because you become. Better at reasoning to those conclusions, so i don 't harbor any ill will to, toward those people, so i i wouldn't want to use any methods that would harm them there 'd be no point to that. Plato talks about in the Republic he talks about beating a man makes him a worse man. My mentor who was an um, interned in Buchenwald and went back to liberate the same the same camp in which he was uh, um the Nazis put him, prevented the guards from being killed either by the invading soldiers or or by the other prisoners. He was really a paragon of decency. And so people are held sway to some very dangerous ideas and harming them, it's a form of injustice towards yourself. It doesn't, and it doesn't, certainly doesn't do them any good.
0: I want to read to you from an email that I got this week that I think is relevant to this conversation. It said, in part, it said this. Today was my first day of New York grad school. I was the only one who didn't do the pronoun thing, and I just said my name instead. Mm. It was awkward, but I'm proud of myself. As a former English major, a teacher, and a sober person, I can't do groupthink, no boundaries and blanket and intimacy. But I'm worried that this ideology, which the person says the thing there isn't a word for yet, might just swallow us all up. Perhaps there's some kind of secret underground society that I need to belong to. Mm. I wonder what you say to this letter writer and maybe also to just any students on university campuses right now, and really also high schools, increasingly middle schools, who are going to be just surrounded by the kind of hijacked language that we've been talking about in this conversation and um, the second they step foot into classrooms or campus and given your own experience, what advice you would have for those who want to think for themselves, for those who want to think freely in an age of conformity.
1: The most important thing is to have a North star. And as long as truth is your North star, your values will never be arbitrary. And so trying to figure out what's true should be the focal point. But but never lose sight of the fact that you have to have the willingness to change your mind about things. You have to say, okay, geez, maybe this could be wrong. And one of the, just a, a quick way to think about it is often when you're in these conversations, many people can't answer the simple question like, geez, how could that be wrong? Or How could that belief be mistaken? And so that's a big red flag. So it's a combination of really wanting to know what's true and trying to do the best you can to figure out what's true, being willing to revise your beliefs, and then speaking openly and honestly. But that just doesn't mean voicing every concern that you have. You have to be somewhat politic and judicious in what you say. But you also have to not bow. You, you have to draw the line between being forthright in your speech and uh, navigating the realities of an institution that's beholden by a, a very dangerous ideology. And that's not an easy, that's not an easy line to, to, to navigate.
0: Is there an underground society that you're a part of that she could join?
1: Yeah, people who are forthright in their speech, people who value honesty and integrity, people who are kind and compassionate, people who, if you do something wrong and, and they call you out on it, the basis of the friendship is in question, but you sincerely think about what it is that they're telling you and you work under the assumption that it's for your own good as opposed to some other end.
0: I, th- I think that thing you said is so, so important about friendship. Right. And the fact that we're now living in a world in which friendships are called into question based on political differences, ideological differences and mistakes, and that right. everything can be thrown up in the air because of the smallest misstep. I mean, that's that's not friendship, at least as I think people like Socrates would have defined it.
1: Thank you for saying that in, in my my book. One of the things that's the most important thing in the book is let's fr- let friends be wrong and it's okay if someone believes something that that you don't believe in fact, it's actually good because then you can have a conversation about it and you know you know what they believe, so no one's hiding anything and so let friends be wrong it's it, It's more important to find friends who who disagree. Aristotle talks about the highest form of friendship between being between two virtuous people It's more important that you're your friends are honest with you and have integrity than than it is that they share your beliefs.
0: One of the things that really worries me, perhaps more than the fact that this student in graduate school in America feels scared for not going along with the group ideology, is that next year or in five years or maybe 10 years from now, that it's not just that they'll be afraid to ask certain questions or say certain things, but they will not even know that they even can ask certain questions. They won't even know what questions to ask because this ideology will so thoroughly have won.
1: I don't, I don't think so. I think you need to be far more hopeful than that. I I, I don't think that this ideology Embedded within this ideology are the features of its own destruction.
0: Ooh, I like that. Say more.
1: Well, it's not sustainable. So, for example, Christianity has a a phrase. um, It's in 1 Peter 3.15. It's about giving a, a reason for your faith, giving a defense of your faith. And people who are defenders of the faith they're called apologists they're not saying i'm sorry for believing they're defending the faith they know the other side of the argument they know what the atheist side of the argument is they know the responses to that those who participate in this ideology or who are in the orbit of it do not by design know the other side of the argument they do not know what the problems to their conclusions could be and whenever you do that whenever you have a system that's not based upon reason, then you have to keep the system in place by some other way, right? Because there's a slack between the justification people have for what they believe and how it's maintained. And so that's why in many Islamic societies, for example, you see strict blasphemy laws. Well, you have to see blasphemy laws because they have no apologetic, right? They have no way... They have no reasoned defense of the positions they hold, so they have to have some kind of enforcement mechanism. And so this ideology, we see the enforcement mechanisms as a type of political correctness. We see the weaponization of institutions and divisions within institutions to punish blasphemers. It is simply an unsustainable ideology. Even more than that, nobody wants to live like this. Nobody wants to walk on eggshells all the time. Nobody wants to think people are out to get them, who actually are out to get them. I mean, this is a very unpleasant way to live.
0: So how do you see it burning itself out? What is the name of the force that stops this ideology?
1: One of the forces that stops the ideology is time. The other one is it just gets to a critical mass of people who say, look, I've just had enough, and I'm going to have a conversation with anyone I want to, and I'm not going to be shamed. Uh, Another force that stops the ideology is like with Jody Shaw, when you have people who give their, if, if, to borrow a term or phrase, their testimony, and, and they speak honestly and openly to a camera, and they tell you their experiences. Because a lot of people don't know what's happening, right? A lot of your listeners think, well, I went to college five or six or 10 years ago, and it was great. I had a great experience. And well, even within the last two or three years, this is not the institution you, you graduated from. And so, kind of waking people up to what the problems are and how severe it is, because these are very, very, very severe problems that people simply don't know about.
0: So why step down now? Like, what was the final straw? Because I could imagine the final straw being the day the guy spit on you or the day the poop was at your Mm. door or any number of other days. What was the thing that made you walk away now?
1: Why would I want to be in a job? I made $60,000 a year. I loved what I did. Like, I truly loved what I did, but I couldn't do what I loved. Like, the institution itself prevented me from teaching, it prevented me from helping people engage ideas. So, it wasn't that I was not making a lot of money, but doing something I loved. It was that I couldn't do something I love, something I was actually hired to do, and I couldn't do that. So what did it say about me if I stayed there? Mm. It's just not the person I want to be.
0: Well, there are certain people who will look at your decision to leave, I imagine, because this was a huge response that I got from loving critics after I left the New York Times, and they would say, you're giving up, you're throwing in the towel. If you only would have stayed there, you know, you could have sort of reformed it in a positive way from the inside.
1: No, that's utterly impossible. There, there is no possible way, particularly when dealing with true believers and dealing with a kind of enforcement mechanism for an ideology. There is just no possible way that I could that the I mean, I, I was even having trouble toward the end with fighting back because every single I was just paranoid when I was in class. I was walking on eggshells that I'd be com someone would complain about me.
0: So before you accused me of not having enough hope, but now you're saying the institutions themselves can't be reformed. But what's the alternative to that?
1: Parallel institutions. So I agree with you when I say this. You have to have more hope. I'm talking about long term hope that this ideology will Die off now what what i don't know is the damage it will do to our institutions before that happens, but there are new institutions being made, new academic institutions, and there's the promise of many new technologies the earlier stages, the prototypes were in like MOOCs massively online classes and such so i you, you already see new universities being put together, you see new k through twelve educational systems, and so I don't think that the system as it is is salvageable. I think it's it's too far lost. Our mutual friend Neil Ferguson feels the same. What will emerge from that is the key question. This is very much like the, the late 90s when the media empires, the traditional media giants were collapsing. People looked Around And they didn't really understand what was happening. And then a new infrastructure emerged that that took over that. And actually, for what you do, you're part of that new infrastructure in, in journalism and media. And just as you're part of that, so too will there be other new types of institutions that are popping up.
0: Obviously, that begs the question, what's next for you? And do you see yourself as having a role in building those parallel institutions?
1: What's next for me is I've started something called National Progress Alliance, nationalprogressalliance.org. And I want to expose, I want to speak in a blunt way and be honest with people about what this is about. And this is what I'm now dedicating my time to. And I would consider these at core free speech, cognitive liberty, which is something we didn't talk about at all, but we probably should, but the the promotion of of cognitive liberty, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and really liberal values, liberal values in the broadest possible stroke. So that's, that's what I'm going to spend my days doing.
0: Cognitive liberty, meaning the ability to think freely? Yeah. So I think this
1: is so important, but it's not, oh, I never hear this brought up. The individuals who participate in this ideology, they're only attempting to take away your speech Because what they really want is your cognitive liberty. They want you to think about questions, particularly moral questions, in a certain way. They want you to have particular answers to that. That's why free speech is so dangerous to them. Free Hmm. speech is just a proxy. This is all about cognitive liberty, of allowing people to to believe certain things.
0: How do you know when cognitive liberty is being threatened? Is the only way to know that? based on whether or not people feel comfortable and safe to speak freely? Or is there another litmus test? I'm curious. So for
1: example, it wouldn't be about the quality or the clarity of argument. It would be about the conclusions that one had. So if one gave terrible reasons for a conclusion that was fashionable, that would be good. But if, if one gave great reasons for a conclusion that was unfashionable and did so in a, a clear way, That would be bad, so it should all be about methods of reasoning that people use to arrive at their conclusions. Right? That's the Socratic method. So, one one way that you would know that your cognitive liberty is threatened is if you're told that there are right answers to moral questions. So it's not just a an epistemological question. In other words, a question of knowledge. It's a question of morality. And if you don't have the right answer to a moral question. It's not that you just don't have certain facts. It's that you're a bad person, right? It's that something is wrong with you.
0: Peter, at the end of your letter, you write this This isn't about me. It's about the kind of institutions we want and the values we choose. Every idea that has advanced human freedom has always and without fail been initially condemned. And I just wanted to ask, was there, when you wrote that, was there an example of an idea that you were holding in your mind as you wrote yeah, that? Yeah, the
1: civil rights movement. I was thinking about the civil rights movement because if you couldn't challenge or question orthodoxies, we would never have an emancipation, right? We, we would never have a liberation of people on the basis of their race. And it was the very idea of freedom and allowing the questions and the challenges that enabled us to arrive at this place. And now among other things, the, 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 very methods, freedom of speech, for example, freedom of the press, that allowed us to liberate our fellow human beings is the thing that we're being denied.
0: Peter Boghossian, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for speaking With parahesia. I hope I use that word correctly. (laughs) Thanks, Barry. Thank you so much for listening. It's been an amazing week over at our newsletter, Common Sense, where We celebrated back to school with a slew of stories that I think you will find extremely interesting. We talk about the unintended consequences of gifts from billionaires like Mackenzie Scott to schools like Whittier College. We talk about the explosion in homeschooling in this country. And we have a fabulous essay by a 17-year-old in New York about how he became immunized to woke politics. Read all of that plus Peter's letter at barryweiss.substack.com. See you soon.